I am hosting a retreat in Tulum, Mexico, in paradise this October called Bloom in Tulum. It's a five-day, all-inclusive, personal and professional growth retreat for ambitious, big-hearted women who are ready to step into their power with grace, support, and confidence. So my two biz besties and I dreamed up this magical retreat over sushi a few months back, and after lots of planning, it's actually happening. We have mapped out a thoughtful itinerary with lots of downtime to make the most of this beautiful paradise beachside location and also set you up for a powerful and memorable experience of growth. There's only 20 spots available and all three of us are promoting it to our full community. So that's like over 50,000 people. So I imagine the spots will fill very quickly. If you are interested in joining us in Bloom and Tulum, go to bloomintulum.com for all the details and to complete your application. Also know that early bird pricing ends on June 30th. So it's a really good time to secure your spot and save some money. I mean, honestly, like how fun would it be to hang out in person at a gorgeous, luxurious, all-inclusive in October? So head to Bloom in Tulum. That's B-L-O-O-M in Tulum. T-U-L-U-M. Bloomintulum.com for all the details and complete your application. And I think we can also just think of our body as a compass. So instead of our body being something that's limiting us, holding us back, keeping us from doing what we really want to do, we could look at it as like our body actually has a lot more reliable information for us than our mind does. You're listening to the Mindful Mama podcast, episode number 273. Today, we're talking about how to heal your nervous system with Kimberly Ann Johnson. Welcome to the Mindful Mama podcast. Here, it's about becoming a less irritable, more joyful parent. At Mindful Mama, we know that you cannot give what you do not have, and when you have calm and peace within, then you can give it to your children. I'm your host, Hunter Clark Fields. I help smart, thoughtful parents stay calm so they can have strong, connected relationships with their children. I've been practicing mindfulness for over 20 years. I'm the creator of Mindful Parenting, and I'm the author of the best-selling book, Raising Good Humans, a mindful guide to breaking the cycle of reactive parenting and raising kind, confident kids. Hey, welcome back to the Mindful Mama podcast. I hope you're doing okay. Guess what? I have amazing news. I'm so excited to share it with you. I got my vaccine. Oh, I'm so excited. I can hear the angels singing as I tell you this. I'm so, so happy about it. We got to go on a nice vacation to visit some friends in Charleston, South Carolina, did a COVID safe outdoor, mostly vacation. And then I came back and I got my vaccine. I'm so happy. Johnson and Johnson, one and done. <sighs> I can't wait. If you are yet to get your vaccine, I can't wait for you to get it too. And we can all do things in person again. Hallelujah. So I hope wherever you are with that, you're uh, doing well. I hope that even if you're going into a lockdown place, I hope you're hanging in there. I know that this episode is going to be helpful 
wherever you are. I had so much fun talking to my friend Kimberly Ann Johnson, and she's a somatic experiencing trauma resolution practitioner, sexological body worker, yoga teacher, trainer, birth doula, and a single mom. And she's the author of the new book. She wrote the book, The Fourth Trimester, an early mothering classic. So good. But her new book is called Call of the Wild how we heal trauma, awaken our power, and use it for good. So I'm so excited to talk to Kimberly. She's also the host of the Sex, Birth, and Trauma podcast. You know, the thing is, our bodies are telling us so much, but many times we're just not listening. So in this conversation, we're going to talk about how tuning into our bodies is really this starting point for understanding our needs, improving communication, and finding our inner jaguar. So we're going to talk about predators and prey and your nervous system. There is so much good stuff here. I know that you are going to get so much out of it, and I really want you to listen for three very important takeaways. One is that our bodies have a register of everything that we've been through. Okay, so they keep a register of that. And also to how our social nervous system influences our behavior and actions. And this is such an important piece of understanding for us to have just about the way we work. It's so, so vital. And then the third takeaway I really want you to listen for is how removing the judgment from our view of predator and prey energies can heal us. This is really, really interesting stuff get to hear me talk about my artwork, all kinds of cool stuff in here. So I cannot wait for you to dive into this conversation. I could have talked to her for hours and hours, and I know that you are going to love it. Okay, I think that's all I got for you before we dive into this awesome episode. Join me at the table as I talk to Kimberly Ann Johnson. Kimberly, thank you for coming back on the Mindful Mama podcast. You're a returning guest. Woo! Yay! (laughs) I'm so excited to talk to you about your book, and I'm enjoying it so much, Call of the Wild. And you, the subtitle is, I'm going to say it here because it's so pertinent, How We Heal Trauma, Awaken Our Own Power, and Use It for Good. And in it, I just want to like kind of just dive right in because there's so much like great content to talk about in this book um, that I, in it, I think I was thinking about like, well, we have to kind of describe what the problem is a little bit, right? That we all have. And you say that like, despite years of therapy or meditation and yoga, we all, many of us feel like trauma and shame and anger persisting. And you describe a a metaphor for trauma that is involves a river and a whirlpool that I thought was a very astute. I really like that. So I was wondering if you could talk to that a little bit. Sure. Thanks for having me back. Um, it's fun to have a long-term relationship. Uh, and for listeners who don't know, like we've met each other in person and I love your artwork that came off of the last podcast. It was just after we even hung up the podcast. I was like, what's that painting that you have behind you? So for anyone who doesn't know, you also have an alter ego as an incredible fine artist. Uh, and I am lucky enough to have one of your paintings in my house. Uh, so the river analogy is about capacity. Sometimes people think that healing trauma means we're going to feel good all the time, um, that we'll just have joy and we won't have the other facets of life. 
And a river has river banks. Sometimes when we feel compressed or stressed or we're carrying a lot of uh, tension or trauma in our systems, those river banks are narrow and the amount of water that can run through them is very little. It's like a trickling stream. And then when we have outer stimulus, a lot of our energy gets veered off into these whirlpools, which in somatic experiencing we call a vortex of trauma or a vortex of healing. So, you know, the river's going along and then something happens and then there we are and all of our energy is siphoned off and we're taken off of the course of our of where the river wants to go, which is, you know, a healthy river, there's going to be obstacles, there's going to be rocks and beaver dams and uh, animals and, and then, you know, the, the water flows around it. So the process of healing trauma is shoring up those riverbanks so that it's not so easy for us to spin off into the vortex of trauma. And the vortex of trauma could look like a syndrome, like anxiety or depression or an autoimmune condition or a behavioral reaction, that all of a sudden we don't find ourselves just defaulting into that vortex. And then our riverbanks actually get wider and the flow of the water gets stronger because what we can quote unquote handle or what's in the, the realm of our capacity to be with without short circuiting into those responses just gets much wider. Mm. So uh, the one other interesting part of that is that most of the time in the spiritual world and the self-help and development world, we think that we have to learn how to be with difficulty. The, the biohacking world is all about like, you know, you got to learn how to be with the tough stuff. But actually what we know from healing trauma is we also have to learn how to deal with what's good and feel pleasure and be mm -hmm. able to hold on to the things that feel good. We actually can't help someone heal trauma unless they have a capacity to stick with something that feels good in their system. Otherwise, we just go with them into their trauma vortex. It's really interesting that the whole piece about we need this capacity to feel good because when I'm when I'm, you know, as I've noticed over the years, as I pay attention to my body, I notice that like something that feels really good can feel as weird and unsettling as something that feels really bad. And it's interesting because it's like, because you describe the nervous system and arousal. And I think of that, that, the, you know, the way like something that's feels so good, it can, it can, when I zoom into my body and I get into that, and we'll talk about the, that whole idea of that felt sense, it's like, ju it's just as it, it is like a feeling of like arousal, like, oh, there's this. And, and, and I know that a lot of us try to kind of get back to <laughs> back to normal, right? When something or what's familiar, when something feels really good too. Definitely. And that can be feeling good sexually. That could be making amount of money that you've never made or getting an offer. Um, even just right now, I have this amazing project that I got selected for and I'm procrastinating about it. And I'm procrastinating because I want to get it right. And there's some perfection in there. And then there's also the fear of, of not getting it right and the, the exposure. So novelty can register as activating. It's not just learning how to roll with or tolerate discomfort it's like well how and how can we be with each other in victories you know like how can we celebrate with each other it's so complicated right now because the world is 
ever more framed in threatening ways, whether it's the planet or how we are together racially or how we are together with sex and gender. And so sometimes we can feel like, well, we don't deserve to feel good or, or you know, mm. I'm in a white body. I have privilege. I'm cisgendered. And so therefore I shouldn't feel bad, but I also shouldn't feel that good. Um, and mm. actually maybe mm. I should feel bad because maybe if I demonstrate that I feel bad, that's going to demonstrate some kind of solidarity or, you know, I'm going to distribute the amount of suffering there is. Uh, my hope is that there is a way that we can both focus on being well enough to being to be available in these conversations, uh, but also continue to, from a body perspective and a felt sense animal perspective, we can sense what other animals, including human animals, are, are experiencing and that that will come into a greater level of wholeness as well. So we really do need, I call it in the book, a hold it moment which is, um, and you know those people in your life that can hold it with you. You know, I have some, a friend who's in her 70s and she was able to buy an apartment for the first time. And she was a stay-at-home mom and raised three children and her husband was the breadwinner. And so she, it's like a really big deal for her that she bought an apartment on her own. But when she wrote me, she said, I knew you could celebrate this with me. And I don't know what it is, but I feel like I can't really tell my peers because mm -hmm. it's that, other concept in the book of fitting in of like, oh, it could be dangerous if I stand out. And so my system is telling me, no, go back, be the same, don't be too different or else there's going to be a consequence to it. So we, we definitely need those people in our lives that can just see us for who we are and celebrate the good things with us. And the, all circles back to this idea of capacity you were talking about, the river, like we want to widen those borders of the river. Sometimes I think of capacity in the terms of like comfort zone, you know, like, you know, that kind of growth is like outside of our comfort zone and, and we want to expand that comfort zone, that yeah. kind of capacity. Some people call it like in, in somatic experiencing, a lot of people call it a window of tolerance. People mm -hmm. might have seen that in polyvagal theory, but I don't like the word tolerance because tolerate mm -hmm. is something that's kind of passive and most women go through life tolerating a whole bunch of things that shouldn't really be tolerable. So I like to think a bit of a win window of presence. How much can you stay mm -hmm. present to without getting kicked out into one of those eddies? And it's perceptible in each other. So uh, another way I talk about it is a platform of okayness. So the big waves come in life. Um, everyone listening has had them this year. There's not anyone who hasn't had a big, you know, their boat's been seriously rocked or the canoe that you're on in the river is like, whoa. Uh, but to what extent does that stress become trauma is how we're able to metabolize it and digest it mm -hmm. and the amount of platform of okayness or our margin of capacity or our window of presence to be available to life in spite of, or in, in addition to all of the big waves. Yeah. That I love that phrase, the window of presence. And I, I think that also really applies to like, when I think about like what we do in mindful parenting, right? Like that's what we're trying to do is like be able to be present for the stuff that's coming up for us. And then also our kids, because they're regulating their nerve, you know, especially those little ones are regulating their nervous systems sort of through us. Right. So you describe this like body first and, and the word somatic, you know, I want you to like kind of just define that because you use that a couple of times, but like body first, nervous system 
focused approach to this healing work. So can you describe what is the difference? Like, what are we, what's kind of like the normal way we're doing things and what is this body center centered nervous system approach? Sure. I don't want to make huge generalizations because Mm -hmm. I know that a lot of your listeners have all different kinds of somatic practices, meditation practices, body-based practices, but in general, Mm -hmm. Most of the way that our culture, meaning white overculture, is organized is a neurocentric framework. So things are top down. So you make affirmations, you make your gratitude list, you decide your self-care practice, and you're doing all of those things with your rational mind. And you're telling yourself, this is what's what's good for you. I should like this. If I don't like this, I better learn to like this. Uh, The other way of doing things is a bottom-up approach. So it's listening to what's happening and what your body is telling you and assuming that your body actually has good information for you. So our culture really rewards us for overriding our body because it's inconvenient Mm -hmm. even to go to the bathroom. Like we just saw that whole weird Amazon thing that came out that drivers are having to go to the bathroom in their truck because they don't have enough time to stop and go to the bathroom. But even as somebody who works at home in her house, sometimes I realize I've been holding it for like two hours and I'm like, just go to the freaking bathroom, like go to the bone. (laughs) Like, what are you doing? Uh, So it can be as simple as that. Like the very simplest of things. Do we know when we're hungry and we eat? Do we know when we need to either go for a walk or lie down? Uh, Mm -hmm. Do we know when we need to be with other people or be alone? Mm -hmm. Not based on what we think we should want, but based on what our system is really telling us that we need. So probably most people listening have heard of the book, Body Keeps the Score. Um, I think that's a little, um, I like that phrase. It says a lot. And I think we can also just think of our body as a compass. So instead of our body being something that's limiting us, holding us back, keeping us from doing what we really want to do, we could look at it as like our body actually has a lot more reliable information for us than our Mm -hmm. mind does. And that, that comes with memory. So we tend to think because we're so brain neofrontal cortex oriented that memory is explicit memory. It's the thing that our brain remembers, the narrative our mind has told us, whereas our body actually does have a register of everything that we've been through independent of our mind. And those memories are implicit. So those memories we might not have a cognitive narrative for, but they live inside of us. And those are the things that are actually communicating much more with other people. That's why communication, especially when power is involved, gets so confusing. Um, Why people have repeat experiences like, oh, I keep getting into the same relationship. My kid keeps putting their hand up my shirt. And when I say no, doesn't listen to me. Um, I keep getting in this dynamic with sex, whatever it is. It's because our system is always giving us opportunities to choose something that's more efficient, to choose something where our riverbank will be wider because that actually potentiates our system. But we look at it like we're getting punished, like, oh my God, here we go again, like same old conversation, same old this, because our nervous system is communicating that. And it's not the law of attraction. It's actually electrochemical signals traveling through our fascia that's communicating to another system because ultimately we're animals. So we're communicating all the time about are we safe? Are we not safe? And what safe looks like is different depending on the relationship dynamic. 
We are sponsored by Midi Health. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, vaginal dryness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. All of these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around perimenopause and menopause, and the experts at Midi Health understand what you're experiencing and how to help. Midi clinicians are menopause experts dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions. Medicare is covered by insurance, and with Midi Health, you can stop pushing through it all alone. Schedule a virtual visit to discuss your symptoms and health background in depth. You'll come out of the experience feeling heard and with a plan to start feeling better. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Joinmidi.com. We are supported by Melon Headwear. These hats are perfect for Father's Day. They are built to be in and around water. They last five times longer than any other hat. They're naturally antimicrobial properties. It doesn't, sweat doesn't break down the hat. No sweat stains, no smell ever. It's built for the water. We tested it tubing on the Brandywine River and it was fabulous. It even floats when it drops in the water. It doesn't lose shape. It is amazing. An incredible, comfortable fit. Use code MINDFUL at checkout for 30% off your order. If you're trying to figure out a Father's Day gift, honestly, trust me, this is exactly what they want. Go to melon.com, that's M-E-L-I-N.com, and use the code MINDFUL at checkout for 30% off. Melon rarely offers discounts, so don't miss this opportunity. It is, I swear, the perfect Father's Day gift. Premium headwear, melon.com. Use the code mindful for 30% off. So this, the idea of kind of going into this body centered nervous system first approach is what I'm kind of hearing from you is that I love what you're saying that, and how you say it in the book, how the body, you know, that, that we have this innate intelligence, like the, it's this trust of the body, right? Not rather than, you know, as you change, you know, like when the body keeps the score, right? And, and it's more about really coming into perception with the body and getting out of our story a little bit. And you, you talk about this, this, this idea of these electrochemical signals um, and that reminds me of this whole piece about the polyvagal theory and the social nervous system. That's so interesting. So can you tell us what that is? Sure. So most of us in high school, we are middle school, whenever you learned about the autonomic nervous system, most people learned that it was either sympathetic is fight or flight and parasympathetic is rest and digest. But that's actually a mixed metaphor that's comparing apples to oranges. So if we're going to go apples to apples, or if we're just going to like take away that and we're going to go passion fruit to passion fruit, there's a whole other branch of the system. So it's not just two systems. There's another branch. And then we need to compare the branches when there's safety and when we're under threat. Yeah, so a sympathetic right. fight or fight response under threat is a fight or flight response. A parasympathetic response under threat is a freeze or collapse response. Okay. Mm-hmm. So um, when it comes to vagal, polyvagal means many branches of the vagus nerve. 
So that's what polyvagal theory means. Mm -hmm. The vagus nerve has two branches. It has one that's ventral. Ventral means the front of your body. And it happens to be in this case, heart, your literal physical heart up into your head and neck and face. And then dorsal is the back of your body, back of your head, back of your neck, your flanks, basically. So this other tier is your social nervous system. That's the ventrovagal system. It developed from maternal bonding. So mm. it's the fine muscles around your eyes. Mm. It's usually the most functional at 18 inches, which is breastfeeding distance. Mm. And it's what's conveying, it's how it's a survival mechanism so that we know how our young is feeling and they will survive because as humans, we have this like incredibly long period where our young are dependent on us compared to most other mammals. So in order that they survive, there has to be a level of attunement. They have to know from our facial expressions, from our vocal tone, uh, from the content of what we're saying, we have a coherence and therefore we're conveying to them safety. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In the social nervous system, this is a little controversial, and this is the part that's the newest in both evolutionarily, but also in scholarship. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of debate and inquiry about, well, okay, so if that's where belonging happens, social connection. And people usually like to say, well, you know, animals like birds have really complex social networks, totally but it's different because it's not operating from the same. Um, well, but it's interesting, system. like as you described that with like the eyes and that close connection, I'm recently like for the last year and a half, I've been a dog owner and like that whole thing with the eyes, with the dog and that connection, I'm like, stop at the dinner <laughs> table because you're killing me. Um, but that's because that, you have one like, of the doodles that are basically humans. <laughs> Those dogs are like humans. I, I, I dog sat one of them once and it spooned me. And I was like, what? Yeah, what yeah, my dog spoons on? me. Yeah, totally. Yes, yes. She's uh, pretty pity. But um, but yeah, I mean, that they, they're they like highly social, you know, <clears throat> herd or pack animals or whatever, the same way humans are. I mean, I, I don't know. Am I, am I reaching here? Um, I don't know. I don't know that much about yeah. animal behavior. Although we, so the other response under threat in the social nervous system, when we're not feeling connected, mirrored, well-attuned, we don't feel we belong. We feel like we have to alter ourselves for belonging, hmm. which is really the level that our culture is relating at, at this moment where there's all this kinds of ways that we're sending messages to each other about what we have to do to say the right thing or do the right thing in order to to belong somewhere. And we're also differentiating more. We're needing safety and homogeneity so that hopefully at some point we'll create some different power structures. So people feel more comfortable relating in mixed environments. Who knows when that'll happen? Um, so at the social level, the response that maybe some people listening have heard of before is called, one of them is called fawning. Mm. And fawning is really came into popular discourse, I think, mostly during the Me Too movement or the resurgence of it, this most recent one in 2017, uh, because fawning is when you go closer to a threat. And the social nervous system dynamics are really impacted by power. So if you're in a position of less structural power, it behooves you to behave in certain ways that are dominated, dictated by the 
person who has more structural power. And if you can approximate it, it's less threat than if it's farther away from you. So all of these situations that we saw of women going up to hotel rooms that from the outside seem like, well, why would you do that? Why would you, you know, when you're in it, your physiology is telling you that it's safer for you to do that than it is for you to to have the consequences of it farther away or why someone returns to domestic abuse or why someone is assaulted by someone and could continue a relationship with them. It's, it's a, a system that's also profoundly impacted by hormones because, because it evolved from maternal bonding. Maternal bonding is based on estrogen and oxytocin. So female hormones like estrogen and oxytocin predispose us towards how we relate with each other. So in some people call it a superpower. Um, it's a superpower because we're highly attuned and we're wired for that attunement. The flip side of that is that we're also disproportionately impacted by the flip side of that, which is really being so concerned and attuned about what everyone thinks about us and what everyone, how everyone perceives that we are. And so we choose either this fawning, which is um, being really super nice, appeasing, um, you know, tolerating, or the flip side, fitting in, which is camouflaging, not standing out, not saying what you think or who you are. And if you look at it in a racial spectrum, then fawning is more like code switching. Like mm. I'm going to do the thing or behave in a submissive way so that I'm not punished by mm. this power dynamic, or I'm going to assimilate and I'm going to erase my difference so that I don't stand out so that I'm less likely to be harmed. Wow. So we yeah. have a lot of physiological, but people think that this is a rational thing and it can be, I mean, you can choose to code switch, but it becomes ingrained and it becomes personality. And then it's passed generationally because it's survival. And the same goes for female male, like we're coded for being able to locate danger and how we locate it is usually through these facial expressions and coded, we could call it body language, but it's a little bit deeper than body language. Huh. I thought that was so interesting. This, this, um, social nervous system. I mean, the way you describe it for, to me, I just think high school, oh my gosh, like <laughs> that's high school all right there. Like fawning and uh, fawning and fitting, fitting in. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, well, yeah. we're trained in a lot of different ways. Like socialization is one thing, but we're also, there's, all, you know, we were talking about feeling good earlier in this conversation. Most of our families have some kind of a cap on feeling good. You can feel, you can feel good, but don't feel good because that might make someone else feel bad, right? Mm. Don't, don't, and that could be, or don't earn more money than everyone else, Mm. or don't earn less money than everyone else. Like there's a norm and stepping outside the norm, uh, there can be consequences, either actual ones or inside of you, what you were describing earlier is that the perception is that you're going to lose connection and losing connection is actually life-threatening. So this is where it's, uh, people, people try to make that into an emotional thing like, Oh yeah, but that's an emotional need. That's not actually a survival need, but it actually is a survival need. Connection is a survival need. 
Yeah. And, and I think that th it's hard for us to accept as Western human beings, that em emotional, that connection is a survival need, you know, we're, you know, I don't know, rugged individualists, right. And, you know, gosh, you know, we're not going to be interdependent. That sounds really scary <laughs> to everybody. Yeah. We sure, don't you know? have any, like, it's like in interdependence, people automatically are like, that's either weak or it's codependent. So we don't really have a good model for that. Mm -hmm. But we're at a juncture where I think we're starting to get it because there's so many people are suffering from loneliness and isolation. And then, of course, the pandemic has just brought like, you know, tore off the lid of Pandora's box for that. So really coming back into this understanding that the social nervous system, we're all impacted by it. And what we really need there is connection. We need to listen to each other. We need to validate stories. So in spiritual practice, a lot of times it's like the, we say, like, get out of your story. And this book is really about making meaning that's outside of your rational mind. So you're letting your body and your psyche inform you of meaning. And at the same time, we have capacity to sit with people who don't think the same things that we think, maybe. And we don't have to do what's happening, which is everyone chooses a side, labels themselves, and then demonstrates that side that they're on and just re gets in a reinforcement loop because no one's actually talking to one another about that maybe have different opinions. And we're letting that narrative get shaped for us both through social media and the news. And our nervous system, while it is wired for connection, it's also wired to perceive danger. So part of when we were talking about pleasure is developing what's right attention. Hmm. So our nervous system is going to go to what's wrong in an effort to protect us. Mm -hmm. And then the culture's feeding that back to us. So it's everywhere we look if we want to find it, oh, ways yeah. that things aren't right and aren't yes. working and are terrible. And it doesn't mean Pollyanna. It doesn't mean being a gradualist necessarily and telling people, look how far we've come. It's really more of a personal thing where you recognize what's around you and you're able to actually take in information that's happening in real time and know that what is right is going to give you the sustenance and the stamina to be able to make your own decisions, act from your center, become a trustworthy ally, become a reliable parent, um, repair when there's ruptures, right? I'm sure you've done a million episodes on that. It's like, yeah, we're not yeah. going to do it perfectly, uh, but there's always repair possible. But to repair with ourselves and repair in our immediate community and then repair beyond our community we have to have a trustworthy center. And the way to develop that is also to develop a relationship with what is working. Yes. Yes. Amen. Mm. <laughs> I love it. I completely agree with everything you said. And you said it really, really beautifully. Um, now I want to, I want to talk about predators and prey. But before we yeah. do, I want to kind of wrap up this, I, this, I mean, not wrap up because it's interwoven throughout the whole book, but the idea of the body first nervous system focus. And you talk about as in a lot of sort of, you have practices and systems of healing and in, in developing that, that capacity for feeling good and for feeling 
anything really in our body, right? We're feeling a lot of things. And you describe the the felt sense. And for me, I could really relate to that because this is something that I I I have been I've been connected to my whole life. That's maybe my something that has been strong for me, but it's it's really something that is not so tell us what is that felt sense and and why this sense of presence with our body is part of the healing work that you described. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence, whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy. When it comes to raising kids, there's so much to consider. Things like, what do we feed them? When do we feed them? How do they sleep? What does it look like to raise kind kids? How does their nervous system work? How do I keep myself calm? What are my triggers? There's so much that comes into play. And we are distilling all of that information for you at Voices of Your Village podcast, where we bring experts in the field of early childhood and education and psychology and across the board so that you don't have to comb the internet for information. You get to show up and hang out and have shame-free, judgment-free conversations and insights into what it looks like to raise kind, empathetic, emotionally intelligent humans. I'm Alyssa Blask Campbell. I have a master's degree in early childhood education. I'm a mom of two, and I am walking this journey right alongside you doing this work. Come hang out with me at Voices of Your Village, and we can dive into real conversations with actionable tips. I learned the word felt sense before or the phrase before I knew where it came from. And I was really surprised when I researched to find out where it came from, that it came from a psychological model. And it came from some research that was saying, why does some therapy work and other therapy doesn't work? And I'm like, million dollar question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Love to know the answer to that. And what they found was that the people who were actually quote unquote getting better, which I think means feeling better, feeling more content in their lives, feeling there was some kind of resolution with who they are and what they're meant to do in the world was that as they spoke, they were speaking from a felt sense experience. And the way that the interviewer knew that that was happening was that they were speaking slowly and they were describing things that they hadn't described before. So you could tell by the way that they were speaking that it was alive to them in that moment. So Mm -hmm. if they said, you know, I'm sad and the interviewer said, well, tell me more about that. They would say, well, you know, it's kind of like I've got a weight on my shoulders. And if there was like water that was sitting between one arm to the other, it feels like it's, you know, mid-level turbulence. And they could just describe 
from a quote unquote felt sense, which means in that moment, what they're feeling, not a record of what they were feeling. So you probably do this when you help people with Mm -hmm. meditation because people oftentimes, you know, if they come to me or they come to you for a session, they're usually there to solve a problem. They're there because they don't feel good and they want to feel better. Okay. Totally normal. We've all done it. That's why we seek help most of the time. You don't feel good and then go, yeah, I'm going to give myself more support. That would be awesome. And I am learning how to do that, but it's not usually what happens. So then people will say, well, they'll tell you, well, I feel this and I feel that. And the question is, are you feeling that right now? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then sometimes the answer is yes. Most of the time the answer is no. And then it's like, okay, well, what are you feeling right now? And not, not, it could be a feeling emotion or it could be a sensation. Mm-hmm. What is the sensation? And sensation language tends to be in the present moment. And it's very, it's not really controvertible because you could tell somebody you're angry. And then, you know, we have this language from the eighties. That's like, let me feel my feelings. And like, no one can invalidate my feelings. But the thing is, is that you're, you could say you're angry and not appear angry whatsoever. I think Mm -hmm. lots of people have this experience. I mean, I had a whole relationship where I kept telling the person that I was angry, but because I wasn't embodying anger, they didn't listen to me Mm -hmm. because it was like, I didn't seem angry and I wasn't culturally coded as angry in a way they could recognize. So I wasn't getting the response. And we have this like, you know, white puritanical culture that says like, it's best to like not be emotional and Mm -hmm. describe how you feel. And then don't be volatile or like with your kids, you know, don't lose your temper and don't do this. But it's also some of the time good to just really be what you are. And it's not as effective. It's really interesting that because that's not as effective. And some of the things I have to coach people in mindful parenting is like when they're describing how they feel and like, show me with your face, what you're feeling. Like when you say this in a super calm way, like that seems fake because you're not showing it to me, you know? Right. Exactly. Yeah. And it doesn't seem, there's no eros behind it, right? There's no mm-hmm. power that's coming behind it. And it, it, as long as we're talking about parenting a little bit, we tend to think that like we're, we feel like we've got to protect our children from those big feelings. Mm-hmm. But really, we help them develop their platform of okayness by being able to respond to all different kinds of feelings and situations and know that they're okay and that the relationship is still intact. Uh, you know, I my parents started reading this book, which is really exciting because they didn't really read the first book. And what my dad and I were having a heated conversation about racism, and I was trying to explain to him that what racism meant in his generation isn't what it means to this generation and what's happening. And I was trying to give him some context. So like if someone calls you a white supremacist, it doesn't mean they're calling you a KKK member. It means they're telling you you're embroiled in a culture that has these values type thing. So he was saying, well, I reject that. And here's why. And you were having a, like an active, lively discussion, but I was super excited because in high school, all I did was like cry all the time while I talked to my parents. So I was like, okay, well now I like actually, I can actually do this. And, um, my parents are different from me and, you know, we can have, but I want to still have a conversation. I love them. And I want to be in relationship with them about things that matter to me. And my dad goes, okay, well, this was a lively conversation, but I learned from your book that just because we're having conflict doesn't mean we can't stay in connection. And I was like, yes! Yes! Like, I was just like, (laughs) oh, fuck, yes! Like, thank you! Um, We have been waiting for this, you know, because that wasn't how it was when I was growing up. It was like you, 
it's not that my parents didn't let me disagree. They let me disagree, but either I didn't have the capacity for the conversation when went into my trauma vortex, which was pretty much like they don't care about the world. They only care about themselves, the meaning, all the meanings that I made out of it because of my point of view. So, um, you know, well, I forgot what we were, where I started. <laughs> That's okay. I love that. Um, yeah. We were talking about the felt sense and kind of just oh. coming into our body. Yeah. And, and I think it sounds like you're doing exactly what I help people do, which is mm-hmm. coordinate response. So to me, it's, I like the word coherence. Some people like the word congruence, but for me, coherence is like a bell tone that like crystal clear. And the way you hit a crystal clear bell tone, you coordinate your facial expressions, the tone of your words, actually like where your voice is on the register, it's called prosody. And then your facial expressions, your affect and your body language. That's how someone listens to you. And, and, and you get the response you're hoping for. The reason I learned this, which I think we talked about on our last podcast, but just briefly is because my daughter wasn't listening to me when she was about five. I mean, that's not the only time she didn't listen to me, but it was one of the times. <laughs> that and, one time she didn't listen. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it was a strong phase where I felt like I was really losing ground and people were telling me, if you don't get a hold on of this, you're going to have a very authoritarian child. And that was freaking me out because I wasn't noticing it. So, um, yeah, basically what happened is we went with five adults somewhere and they all wanted pizza or something and she wanted sushi and she convinced everyone to go to sushi. And my friends were just like, dude, you got to like get a handle on this. So I went to a somatic therapist, which is where I got the name of Jaguar. My course is called activate your inner Jaguar. My book has a Jaguar on the cover because my therapist was from the Amazon and he told me you're a Jaguar. Uh, it's the female cubs that teach. It's the female that teaches the cubs to hunt. Look at you. You have golden skin. Look at your spots, your freckles. And it was at that moment that I realized, oh, I have a totally mixed up view of hierarchy. And I, I, I have this inherited thing from my culture that says that we're all equals and it's democratic. And, and so I'm giving her way too many choices than what she can actually handle. And I'm not taking my right authority in this situation because I have ambivalence about authority and power. So he told me, just go home and start watching Jaguars with their cubs and watch what they do. I wish those, those videos aren't on YouTube anymore, but um, it was a lot of wrestling and, and a lot of, you know, the, the mom laying on the cubs and then getting up and, and struggling with pushing and pulling and showing who's in charge. And what I realized is she was, my daughter was really looking for that. I'm a single parent. So she wasn't getting that. And that's actually why I was feeling sorry for myself. Cause I was like, Oh, I have to be the unconditional love and the disciplinarian. And I hated the discipline part, but I realized it was because of my own ambivalence about being in that predator role and being the alpha. Uh, I was, for all kinds of reasons, very uncomfortable with that role. Yeah. You talk about, and I think this is really interesting. Like you talk about how you were, you know, you were vegetarian and you, uh, there were all kinds of things like you, you just, you know, you did social justice work. And I thought that was really interesting too. Like this idea of like relating to and understanding people who may be victimized, right. As this, this idea of relating to the idea of prey versus predator. And, you know, in the book, you describe how you watch a, a video of a, 
animal stalking a bunny and a predator stalking a bunny and the and you were like oh and the they you know you related to the the prey but you realize that all these other people related to the predator and i thought that was so interesting considering like you know you know for me like as you know like this is something i've wrestled with a lot this idea i mean i guess for me like this idea of, um, I get so frustrated at some point, like early on with the idea that women should just like not have aggression, like with the idea of like when I was semi-vegetarian and wanting me and the idea that, that there was all these, the value judgments that are laid on this and that, um, and you describe how a lot of us, a lot of women, especially like relate to this like prey dynamic and that we have to kind of start to activate this inner predator. So just, I know we don't have a lot of time, but I feel like this is so important to touch on. Yeah. So I just recognized in that moment when we were watching the video that there were people in, in my class that related to the predator. And that was an aha moment for me because I thought only bad people related to the predator. I thought everybody related to the prey and wanted the prey to escape and wanted like, you know, and I was nervous, like watching it. I was like, Oh my God, Oh my God, here it comes. Here it comes. No, 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 get away. You know? And, uh, when I saw that 30% of the class raised their hands, including women saying they related to the predator and were having their, their, they were grinding their teeth. They were feeling saliva in their mouth all of these visceral reactions, just like I was having the visceral tremors for the rabbit, it, it really was like, oh, I've totally given a moral value to these things that somehow being a predator is bad and being prey is good. And then I saw that everywhere, like, oh, so we think predators are usually men. And so men are bad because predators are bad. And we think that prey is usually women. And so prey is good. So women are good. And then here we are in this super binary thing of like, you're either this or you're that. And in truth, in our nervous system, we have to be able to occupy that full spectrum. And then I had another turning point moment where I had a client come in and she was dressed kind of incognito. I live in Southern California and and it's warm here all the time. So you don't see people really, I mean, you know, people get dramatic with their, (laughs) their fluffy jackets at you know, 65 degrees or whatever. But in general, she came in in a hat and sunglasses and totally like swaddled basically. And she said, yeah, I'm like this all the time. And then she started explaining after her third child, she became very energetically sensitive. Um, She was having trouble going outside without feeling like overexposed. She didn't want to be really near her husband. And she was really confused. She didn't really know why she was feeling all those things. So this is a good example of someone who knows her husband is safe and intellectually wants to be near him, but her body is not allowing that. And then she knows she wants to go outside and be around other people because connection is important, but her system's not allowing it. What's going on? So at that moment, I said, okay, let's be the wolf and the rabbit. And I said, you can be the wolf because I thought someone who's already in rabbit mode, you know, fully like covered and hiding uh, would never want to be the wolf. And would never want to be the rabbit because she was the rabbit all the time. And then when I said, why don't you be the wolf? She went into a totally submissive pose and just froze and was, and she could talk. So she was like, I don't know what's happening. I don't know why I'm doing this. And I just was able to take her and be with her in that freeze state while her body slowly thawed out and slowly unwound that particular freeze. And the aha for me was, 
oh, it's not that we don't want this power. It's that our system actually doesn't know how to do it. So most of the people listening here, they would probably call themselves feminists. They would probably say, I know this is my body. I know I can have the kind of sex I want in my brain, but my body might be doing something different. And so I developed a process of helping someone go from that predator, the prey energy to the predator energy, which I call activate your inner jaguar, which is being able to tolerate sympathetic arousal. So when I mapped out before the social sympathetic and parasympathetic, I talked about it under threat. But in safety, the social nervous system looks like I can be who I am, I can be different, I can be biodiverse, and I still belong. The sympathetic system is what wakes us up in the morning. It's what gives us energy. It's what gives us healthy power and drive. It's what it's like the uh, the thrust. And then the parasympathetic is what slows us down. It's what allows us to rest and settle. It's what allows us to release fluids. Birth, you need a combination of all of them. The social nervous system in birth is what allows you, the context that allows you to feel safe, that you know that you could express yourself and be listened to and belong. You don't have to perform your birth. You don't have to be a certain way for the people in your birth room. You can actually be the, the felt sense way. The sympathetic and scare is, your husband to death. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, a willingness to disrupt certain agreements that, I mean, that's so common, right? It's mm -hmm. so common that women say, oh, I wanted this birth, but my husband wanted this. So we went to the birthing center or I wanted to do this, but my partner wanted this. And so we did X. And then afterwards they have to deal with not only what happened in the birth, but the fact that really underlying that was that they they weren't claiming their own agency because they thought the partnership was more important than their visceral agency hmm. but in birth the sympathetic phase is more of the pushing phase that's where you have action and it's what a lot of you know midwives will actually sometimes scare people a little bit to get that adrenaline going like you know you you that's why people have to get out of the bathtub sometimes the warm water is just settling them too much and it's not letting the labor go to where it needs to go um and on the flip side, sometimes you have to get into water because your sympathetic under threat is there and you need that parasympathetic downregulation. But the parasympathetic is more of the dilation phase. So um, in sex, arousal is more of a, par it's a, it's a oscillation between sympathetic and parasympathetic, but ejaculation is more of the sympathetic. So most women have ambivalence about sympathetic energy because if we've been prey, we don't want to be predator because we would never want to harm someone in a way that we've been harmed because the emotional signposts of sympathetic energy, which are irritation, frustration, anger, and rage are coded as bad for, for most women to have. And uh, there's all this emphasis on calming down and being more balanced and measured rather than, okay, but what happens when there's big energy? Because if, for instance, lots of people come to me and they want to be multi-orgasmic or something, um, well, you have to, to do that, your river banks have to be very wide because there's a lot of unexpected things that can happen in that state. Hmm. Yeah. And I, I love how the, what you're describing is, yeah, you, you know, to use the words you use in your book, like uh, pendulation back and forth. We need all of these energies. We need to Definitely. accept and embrace 
find a way, you know, to like accept and embrace all of these energies and say, like, these are all part of the human system. Like I remember when I went on the seven day silent retreat, you know, with, and it was like seven days and I'm thinking to myself, I can't close my eyes for like all this time for like, I'm never going to sleep at night, you know, like, and for me, my whole my purpose was to understand my mind and to get get into this meditative state. But my other purpose was in taking care of my body was regulating my energy. And I was like, okay, I know how to do this. Like I know how to regulate my energy. I knew that that too much, I needed to burn some energy. Like I needed some fast movement. I went for a run every day. I did some really vigorous yoga during that retreat when everybody else was walking really slowly. <laughs> I went downstairs in the basement and did some really vigorous yoga because, I mean, I can't agree with you more. Like we need to be able to, like, it's about un uh, understanding our energy, accepting, being able to to access all of our energy, expanding that capacity. It's so cool. Totally. And also that we're all not the same. Our rhythms yeah. are, our inherent rhythms aren't the same. And most of the, most of the output that most of the information that we've received is coming from a male model. So mm -hmm. all the biohacking information, intermittent fasting, uh, you know, how you should structure your day. That's how the, the typical thing of like, wake up super early and do this and do that is that's based on the testosterone cycle. That's not based mm. on a female hormone cycle. So I love that you were able to move when I did silent retreat, we weren't allowed, like they told us you can't, you can't move. Um, and that's its own kind of free state. So that's, you know, when I talk with yoga people and meditators, I also am trying to help them develop this rhythmicity because yoga and meditation often slow down our valve system. And what you're talking about is like, yeah, but we need to accelerate the valve system so that we can slow it down. And sometimes we have to do that, you know, little by stair step by stair step. Um, I feel like you and what you've described to me before, and I think is really interesting is it seems like you know, in your upbringing, your parents are really in tune with wildness. Your parents are really in tune with artistry. And so maybe in some ways you didn't have so many ruptures. So you have access to a lot of this raw energy because it was like encouraged. And I think that's unusual. And I think it's also really cool that you came to mindfulness kind of already intact, because I think that a lot of people come to spiritual practice with a lot of trauma. And mm. that's why the spiritual practice gets a little haywire because the underlying trauma hasn't been addressed. And that was my, that was my experience. Mm. I didn't, I knew that I had some really extreme traumas. Um, but I, I didn't realize how much just my regular old upbringing in an alcoholic family, but nonviolent one, um, was also predisposing me to those reactions. And I, I sort of, I feel like about spiritual practice, kind of how I feel about menstruating at this point is like, I'm coming to the end of my menstruating years. And I really just am sad that I didn't know my, that entire time, what I've learned in the last 10 years. <laughs> uh, and the same thing about spiritual practice is like, I was so devoted, so committed, you know, hours and hours and hours a day of 
everything of asana, of chanting, of meditation for 10 years. And all of that, because I just felt so much unrest in my system that I was trying to metabolize it. And I didn't know that. I mean, I loved it also. I I was Mm -hmm. a dancer. I loved yoga. I I was 100%, you know, I'm so lucky. I've always done what I'm completely passionate about. So I wasn't punishing myself by doing it. It's just that now that my head is above water most of the time, I just wonder, well, what would practice have been like if I, it wasn't a platform to get me out of trauma, but it was just kind of boosting me more from, from an adaptive place? Mm, yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. So I, I guess the question we leave the listener with is, you know, where, where, in your, where do you feel and, you know, what do you feel in your body? Like, what are you, where are you in the, you know, are you feeling you know, do you, where do you need, where do you need more of that parasympathetic calm? Where do you need more of that sympathetic energy? Where do you need to kind of explore some of those things in your life? What would you, would you give the listener some final words to chew on here in our wide ranging conversation? I think the simplest uh, thing that I could say that doesn't require, you know, really much of an investment other than just pausing for a moment is number one, look around you. So mm-hmm. look up, look up from your devices, look up from your screens, look at the horizon or above, look behind you, look below you and actually see what's around you. So you might even notice if you do that right now, wherever you are, uh, your breath might change. You might notice a difference in your skin quality you might perceive something different outside of you or inside of you. But we can become, there's a, an ethos that we're all too externally oriented and, and all the answers are in our inner world. And that isn't true. And we need to be in the outer world sometimes and in our inner world sometimes. And we need to be able to pendulate between those two. So when people have habits that are hard to break, And they really want to break them like, I don't know, biting your nails or smoking. A lot of the time it's because they're going to a certain place in the internal world. And once, so that practice of going to the outer world, like noticing something that's outside of you and letting your attention land there like a bird that lands on a branch and then going inside you and noticing something that feels good. If you can, for most people, it's very hard to look inside and notice something that feels good. It's either you don't notice anything or you just notice pain like, oh, my, most people are like my lower back hurts or my neck hurts. But if you could go a layer underneath that of just something that feels spacious or warm or, um, and if this is really hard, that's normal because even within yoga practice, which I did for about 13 years before I learned this work, I was contacting levels of my body and a very sharp attunement for how to move things, move, including energy. It wasn't noticing what's happening in a resting state and developing this pendulation. If you watch animals, they do it normally. They're just, and, and, and well-regulated humans do it normally, but we make meaning to it. So like if someone's not giving you great eye contact all the time and they're looking around, you're like, why are you looking around? You know, it's like, normally we would look around a little bit and then we would come into focus and then we would look around and then we would come into focus. Yeah. That, 
that was really interesting that part too there's so much good stuff in here Kimberly I'm really <laughs> enjoying it you guys should go get it call of the wild by Kimberly Ann Johnson thank you so much for coming back on and talking to me about this I could probably talk to you for a lot longer but um, yeah thank you <laughs> uh, it's really fun I mean it's it's fun to talk to people like you who get it and get it in a lot of different ways both as a parent and as in your artwork and like the reckoning of, of what, what does that, what does it mean? You know, what does it mean to be in a human body and, and is very contested right now, right? Like there's just so many ways that like what it means to be in a body, what it means to be in a female body, um, how we relate with power, how we relate to each other. And I'm really hoping that, um, with the book, I'm offering people a new language for themselves internally, but also so that we can be with each other in a way that you know, is respectful and trustworthy and create the world that we want to belong to. Yeah. Be with, be with yourself and your, your whole body, mind system so that then you can be with others as well, for sure. Thank you so much, Kimberly. Where can people find out about what you're doing in the world? Uh, you can go to KimberlyAnnJohnson.com. So you, some people might've known me as Magamama, but I'm now, um, my, birth name, KimberlyAnnJohnson.com, no extra ease. And um, if you go to KimberlyAnnJohnson.com slash chapter, you can get the first chapter for free, which has like most of the major frameworks and the things that I was mapping out with polyvagal theory that happens in the first chapter, as well as connections with connective tissue. And um, it gives you the frame for the book. Yeah, it's well worth it. And then um, on social media, I'm Kimberly Ann Johnson too. At the moment, there's some weird punctuation, but we're hoping to take care of that. <laughs> and we'll have all that in the show notes. Thanks again, Mama. Thank you. So nice to talk to you. You too. I love Kimberly's holistic view of humans, right? This, our body-based view, it just makes so much sense. We, you know, getting back into our bodies, trusting our bodies, feeling the sensations in our bodies. It's so healing and powerful. I encourage you to get her book. It's really, really cool. I'm hoping you have a beautiful week. I hope you're in some nice warm weather, enjoying the outside with your family, looking at the beautiful, you know, like uh, sometimes like today I was walking along and I saw a violet just like bursting out of this crack in the sidewalk. And it's like, oh, I love, it's where I really see the abundance of the earth and the universe just i love seeing things pop through cracks and sidewalks so i hope that you can enjoy some of that this week and i thank you so so much for spending time with me and sharing that precious resource with me your time it really i'm really honored that we could do that so thank you so very much my friend and i will talk to you again next week namaste do it. It's really helpful. It will change your relationship with your kids for the better. It will help you communicate better. And just, I'd say communicate better as a person, as a wife, as a spouse. It's been really a positive influence in our lives. So definitely do it. I'd say definitely do it. It's so worth it. The money really is inconsequential when you get so much benefit from being a better parent to your children and feeling like you're connecting more with them. And 
not feeling like you're yelling all the time or you're like, why isn't things working? I would say definitely do it. It's so, so worth it. It'll change you. No matter what age someone's child is, it's a great opportunity for personal growth and it's a great investment in someone's family. I'm very thankful I have this. You can continue in your old habits that aren't working or you can learn some new tools and gain some perspective to shift everything in your parenting. Are you frustrated by parenting? Do you listen to the experts and try all the tips and strategies, but you're just not seeing the results that you want? Or are you lost as to where to start? Does it all seem so overwhelming with too much to learn? Are you yearning for a community of people who get it, who also don't want to threaten and punish to create cooperation? Hi, I'm Hunter Clarkfields, and if you answered yes to any of these questions, I want you to seriously consider the Mindful Parenting membership. You'll be joining hundreds of members who have discovered the path of mindful parenting and now have confidence and clarity in their parenting. This isn't just another parenting class. This is an opportunity to really discover your unique, lasting relationship, not only with your children, but with yourself. It will translate into lasting, connected relationships, not only with your children, but your partner too. Let me change your life. Go to mindfulparentingcourse.com to add your name to the waitlist, so you will be the first to be notified when I open the membership for enrollment. I look forward to seeing you on the inside. Mindfulparentingcourse.com. Hi there, I'm Andrea Owen, self-help author with 19 translations of my books, global keynote speaker, and life coach. My podcast, Make Some Noise, has been serving up self-help in a simple-to-digest way for the last decade. The topics brought in each episode are practical and easy to implement around topics such as working through fears that keep you stuck, different modalities of therapy, managing your negative self-talk, and more. We bring you guest experts, solo episodes, and I even coach listeners on the air around relatable struggles. I also do my best to weave my sense of humor into some heavy topics because let's face it, life can be pretty hard and it's so much better when we can have some fun while walking through our challenges. Whether you're seasoned in personal development or just starting out, Make Some Noise podcast will help you become the best version of yourself, the person you're proud of when you look in the mirror and show up in your life. Simply search Make Some Noise with Andrea Owen wherever you listen to your podcasts.